From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name's Howard Norman. I'm reading from my new novel, What Has Left the Daughter. Marlis, today is March 27th, 1967, your 21st birthday. I'm writing because I refuse any longer to have my life defined by what I haven't told you. I've waited until now to relate the terrible incident that I took part in on October 16, 1942, when I was 19. Your mother, Tilda Hillier, frequently consulted the Highland Book of Platitudes, which had 411 pages. She had it practically memorized. She found instruction and solace in that book, even the solution to certain puzzles about life. But I thought all those platitudes put together avoided the fact that life is unpredictable. For instance, after moving hotel to hotel here in Halifax for many years, I finally returned to my childhood house at 58 Roby Street, which I never thought I'd set foot in again. In fact, it's now 3 a.m., I scarcely sleep anyway, and I'm writing at my kitchen table. Two Sundays ago, I stopped in at Harbor Methodist Church. On occasion, I do that, more out of nostalgia than present faith, to say the least. Anyway, when I entered the church, Reverend Lundergan was recounting some ancient parable or other in which an elderly woman listens to her son hold forth about how much heartbreak, sour luck, and spiritual depletion can be packed into a life. But talk as he might, the man from the parable fails to address one thing that his mother is most curious about. What of your daughter, she asks. Have you seen her? How is her life? Do not doubt that wonderment may be found when you find her again. Turns out the man hasn't seen his own daughter in ages. Rain, wind, hunger, thirst, joy, and sorrow have visited her all along, the woman says. Yet her father has not. She listens more, all the while experiencing a deeper and deeper sadness, until finally she says, And what is left the daughter? She doesn't mean heirloom objects. She doesn't mean money. She doesn't care about anything like those. She says, I think you have a secret untold that keeps a distance between you and her and the life you were given. Well, Marlis, you know how people talked in biblical times. Still, when I left the church, I thought, Strange how you can't predict during which happenstance you might take something to heart. And right then and there, I understood that all I had to leave you, really, is what I'm writing here. I've read some of the English poet John Keats, and he said something to the effect that memory shouldn't be confused with knowledge. Of course, I have no way of knowing if, after you've read a paragraph or two, any curiosity you might have had will abruptly sour to disgust or worse. Yet I hope you'll see these pages through, and that whatever else you may think, whatever judgments you come to, please at least accept the knowledge that I've always loved you without cease. How Your Father Became an Apprentice in Sleds and Toboggans in the Village of Middle Economy, Nova Scotia In the Highland Book of Platitudes, Marlis, there's an entry that reads, Not all ghosts earn our memory in equal measure. I think about this sometimes. I think especially about the word earn because it implies an ongoing willful effort on the part of the dead so that if you believe the platitude, you have to believe in the afterlife, don't you? Following that line of thought, there seem to be certain people, call them ghosts, with the ability to insinuate themselves into your life with more belligerence and exactitude than others. It's their employment and expertise. My parents are such people. How else to describe it? Let me try. Last evening, for instance, I sat at the table. 
It was lightly raining. I was having a cup of tea, listening to a Beethoven quartet, Quartet Number no. 9 in C Major, my favorite, on the nightly classical radio program, when suddenly the broadcast was interrupted by static. Maybe I take these things with the radio too personally, but I got the uneasy feeling I felt this many times. The static was really my mother and father's indecipherable tidings from the afterlife. Were they trying to tell me something? What was the message? I imagine that your mother informed you of this. Maybe she didn't, but let me say it directly. My own mother, Catherine, and my father, Joseph, leapt from separate bridges in Halifax on the same evening. I was 17. Oh, it was quite the scandal. It made for bold headlines in the Halifax Mail, page 2, the day after it happened, page 4, the following day. The war was on, so most of the front page was reserved for Allied victories and setbacks and Axis atrocities. So there I was, a spectacle for every Haligonian to pity, victim of a sordid love triangle, orphaned all of a single hour on August 27, 1941, between 6 and 7 o'clock, not quite dusk at that time of year, but almost. Odd as it might sound, the first thing I experienced past the initial shock was embarrassment, and when I returned to school the day after the funerals, I could hardly breathe for the shame and embarrassment of it all. That may not reflect well on me, but it's the truth. Of course, at night the weird sadness found me, and everything familiar to my life, absolutely everything, had suddenly become unfamiliar. It's been 26 years, then, since my father leapt from the Halifax-Dartmouth toll bridge connecting Highway 111 to the Bedford Highway, my mother from the toll bridge connecting North Street to Windmill Road, rough waters that day under all bridges, Bedford Basin to Halifax Harbor, wild dark skies and gulls more catapulted and buffeted than flying here to there, all of which I could see from my high school on Barrington Street. Anyway, I keep the clippings in a mintwood box. Among their headlines are Unusual Love Nest Results in Twin Suicides and Mystery Woman Causes Family Tragedy. Have you ever read the poet Emily Dickinson? She says that to travel, all you need to do is close your eyes. Here at 58 Roby some nights, I close my eyes and I'm back on August 27, 1941, sitting on the porch when the first of two police cars pulls up in front of our house. Imagine, only 10 or 15 minutes before, I'd gotten a phone call telling me what had happened. And here I'd been complaining to myself, where is everybody? Am I going to have to make my own supper? First page to last, the Highland Book of Platitudes, originally published in Scotland, does not contain a platitude that addresses a woman falling in love with a woman and a man falling in love with the same woman. Yet that was the situation with my parents. And this included our next-door neighbor, Reese McIsaac. In 1941, Reese McIsaac was 35 years old. Her hair was the color of dark honey. She was slim and dressed smart and was, to my mind, as lovely and mysterious as any woman you'd see in an advertisement for perfume in the Saturday Evening Post. My family didn't have a subscription, but you could find copies in the lobby of the Lord Nelson Hotel on Spring Garden Road across from the public gardens. In fact, Reese was employed as a switchboard operator at the hotel. Also, she'd taken acting lessons, and in 1937 had appeared in Widow's Walk. It was a picture about a woman whose husband's fishing boat capsizes in a storm on the same night she'd been dallying with a handsome village doctor. Out of guilt and remorse, 
the woman goes mad and spends the rest of her nights in a widow's walk atop her house. For the first few months that it was being filmed, Widow's Walk was all the gossip, referred to as an all-Canadian production. Most of it was shot near Port Medway. It even built a temporary lighthouse. In the heart of winter the following year, Widow's Walk played in Halifax, and I went to see it with my parents. Just after the opening credits, Reese McIsaac appeared on screen. She played a hotel switchboard operator. Hold on, please, she said, and listened through an earpiece. I'm sorry your party is not answering. Try again later, please. This scene took all of 30 seconds. Still, I was impressed, and though Widow's Walk had no true movie stars in it, and box office-wise it fell short of popularity, I imagined all sorts of associations. I wondered, had Reese met Loretta Young? Had she met Tyrone Power? Had she met Jean Harlow? When the meager audience filed out of the theater, I said, Pretty lucky of them to find someone with first-hand experience with switchboards like Reese has. Right there on the sidewalk, my parents fell apart laughing. My mother said, Darling, I hate to point out the obvious, but Reese McIsaac's cameo took place in the switchboard cubby she actually works in, 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day but Sunday. Hardly a big stretch, my father said. I don't care, I said. She did well with what she was given. A week after the funerals, as I lay on the sofa drinking whiskey to try and help me sleep, I realized that I didn't begrudge my father that he loved Reese McIsaac. The same went for my mother, all received morality notwithstanding, for which I didn't give a good God damn not in the least. I knew that my parents no longer loved each other. Since I was eight or nine, I knew it, even earlier. Civility had become their mainstay. Civility bowed and curtsied, good night, dear, as they went to separate bedrooms. I suppose that I was happy enough that we all still lived under the same roof. Besides, in high school I was captain of the fencing team, and fencing in 1941 had most of my attention. I'd placed well in tournaments as far flung as St. John's, Newfoundland. I quit fencing after my parents died, just somehow lost the connection to it. And though I'd been quite friendly with Reese McIsaac, I'd even paid the price of a ticket to see her play a handmaiden in a stage production of Romeo and Juliet. I can't say that I knew much about her. However, one summer night, when I was fifteen, I caught sight of Reese dressed in a nightgown. It looked silky, with a pattern of outsized lilies, exotic nightwear for Halifax, I thought. She was watering the three plants on her kitchen sill with an eyedropper. My thought was, that's being frugal, though it might be stinginess. Truth be told, after my parents' suicides, for days on end my emotions roughed me up, and I went from seething anger to stupefying bewilderment to sadness that put me to bed at odd hours. What's certain is that it was during this period my sleepless nights began. My parents are buried in Camp Hill Cemetery. Their funerals were an hour apart, each officiated by Reverend Carmichael, then at Harbor Methodist, the church with which my parents had a hit-or-miss affiliation. Chapter and verse, Reverend Carmichael's services were standard. The fencing team attended. My mother had been an accountant at HMC Dockyard, and many of her colleagues paid their respects. My father owned a stationery and typewriter repair shop on Grafton Street, and I can recall his business partner, Mr. Amory, at the graveside, along with Mrs. Amory and their two daughters. When he and I shook hands, I noticed that Mr. Amory had typewriter ribbon smudges on his fingers. When all was said and done, I handed Reverend Carmichael fifty dollars in an envelope. He looked inside and shook his head and said, You know, I usually charge $50 each, 
but this was... And he couldn't find the next word. Then he left. During both services, it had been drizzling, but afterwards, people held their umbrellas closed. As they milled about, I didn't have a single direct conversation. Instead, I walked around half in a daze, mostly eavesdropping. For instance, there was Oliver Tapper, who wrote Canadians at the Front column for the Sunday Mail. Oliver, who had published a collection of patriotic poems, was a regular customer at my father's shop, often in a panic claiming some emergency deadline. On the wet grass of the cemetery, he said, Look, there's poor Catherine not ten feet away, and there's right in front of us poor Joseph. All this good air to breathe, and guess who gets to breathe it? None other than that harlot, that wretched, failed actress. What are you saying, Oliver? Mrs. Tapper said. You want fairness? You want her punished for sordid immoralities? Well, those were shared, don't forget. And besides... We're at a funeral. Please mind your language. Oh, I almost forgot the most peculiar headline was accompanied by a photograph of me, the one taken for the high school yearbook, Local Boy Orphaned by Bridges, as if I weren't already 17, hardly a boy, as if it were the Bridges' fault, not human nature's. You only live the life right in front of you. All day at school on August 27th, which was just the fifth day of classes in the autumn 1941 term, I had no idea how my parents' fates were being determined. We'd all had breakfast together. My father had been chatty. My mother wasn't sullen. Later, though, I pieced a few things together from the newspaper accounts and from conversations, call them that, I had with the police officers who'd been sent out to the bridges. Officer Domnall, who was born in Ireland and still retained the accent, told me about my mother. I tried talking her down, he said. You try and make the person in distress confide what makes them happy in life. You try and work with that if at all possible. See what I mean? And I'm sorry I failed. Very sorry in the end I failed. I could see that Officer Domnall was honestly shaken. Didn't she at least say goodbye to me, I said, because she didn't leave a note. Being so fraught as your mother was, he said, and what with the wind high on that bridge making it so difficult to catch every last word, but I think she said, I suppose this will be all over the radio. No matter. I have nothing to be ashamed about. Okay. All right, then. Thank you. My job's hardly all peaches and cream, Domnall said. Your mother was my first jumper. Some police never get one. Don't please let that word offend you. It's just a police word. I understand. I'm sorry for what happened. I'm afraid I shut the door in his face. When it came to my father, an officer Paget delivered the report. He knocked, and I stepped out on the porch again. We shook hands, and he said, I know Officer Domnall stopped by earlier. Yes, he did. So am I speaking to Mr. Wyatt Hillier, then? Correct? Correct. Wyatt, just let me say my piece. Officially say it, so I can get back to the station house and say I said it, and do my paperwork, leave you with your private thoughts, eh? Fine. He consulted his notebook. I arrived to the bridge at 6.15 p.m., he said. I climbed up close as possible to your father. He looked tired. To me, he looked tired. He said, For a long time I've had this private joke, so private I never told my wife. It's what I want on my gravestone. What I want on my gravestone is, I just knew this would happen. He checked his notes again, and your father said, Both women were damn interesting, each in their own way. There it is. Tell my son Wyatt to forgive me, please. Ask him to at least try. 
I asked him what is his name, and he said, Joseph Hillier. So I said, Joseph, do you like the stakes at Halloran's? Since in our training, we're taught to try and persuade a person back into normal life. You mention a popular restaurant, or you ask which church they attend. But your father let go of the bridge. I stepped back inside and shut the door and watched through the window as Officer Paget got into his car. There seemed no apparent reason, but he kept his siren on the whole way down the block. Naturally, my Aunt Constance Bates Hillier and my Uncle Donald Hillier drove in from Middle Economy to attend the funerals. They also stayed on to help me get things in order, settle my parents' estate, so-called. It consisted of 58 Roby Street, completely paid for, a modest life insurance settlement, $1,334 in a savings account, and my mother's collection of radios. I have absolutely no idea of the worth of these radios or how to find out, my uncle said. We can look into this later. All told, my mother had 58 radios. The sound of radio voices or music had almost nightly drifted into my bedroom. The volume turned up when my parents wanted to deafen me to their quarreling. Among her collection was a 1938 International Cadet, a white silver tone, four different Bakelite models, and a Philco Transitone. She had two FADA radios, a 1939 RCA from the Golden Gate International Exposition in San Francisco, she didn't attend, a Zenith model, 835, and other wood frame sets. She had a Crosby chrome radio, an RCA Victor La Siesta, which featured a colorful painting of a man in a sombrero sitting near a tall saguaro cactus with mountains and clouds in the distance. She had a Cadet Topper, an Emerson Snow White model, and three Detrola Peewee models, red and white, black, and blue and white. There were three small, molded plastic radios made by the FAD Andrea Corporation, RCA and Crossley. She had a Bendix with a fake mottled mahogany casing, and that one had standard broadcast and shortwave bands and could operate on both AC and DC power. In the last three years of her life, my mother preferred novelty sets adorned with popular celebrities. For instance, there was the Stuart Warner set with a decal of the famous Dion Quintuplets, who'd been taken away from their parents but kept together in a foster home. My mother followed that story religiously. Heartbreaking, she said. It's really too much to bear. On the decal, the Dion Quints appeared to be about three years old. They were standing together, all hope and smiles. On September 15th, my aunt and uncle and I took a walk down to the harbor. We each held a paper cup of coffee and stood looking at the ferries, tugs, freighters, and ocean liners. The steamer Victoria was boarding. We were close enough to see the passengers walking up the gangway, and suddenly I thought I saw Reese McIsaac. It was unseasonably cold, and she was wearing a camel hair coat, holding a suitcase, though I imagine her wardrobe trunk was already on board ship. At one point she turned as if to gaze back at Halifax, and I saw her face in full. It was Reese, all right. I must have let out a gasp or made some other involuntary sound, because my aunt said, What's the matter, dear? Nothing, I said. Nothing at all, except I was just thinking how grateful I am for all you've done. I haven't been much of a nephew to you. I hardly ever visit. That's all right, dear, my aunt said. When you have visited, we always had a lovely time. Wyatt, my uncle said, the way you've been looking at those passengers makes me think you'd like to be on that steamer to New York. I've noticed some handsome women getting on board. 
Donald, it sounds like it's you wishes that for yourself, my aunt said. Small laughter all around. I've really only traveled anywhere with my fencing team, I said. I'd like to see New York someday, though. You're going to need a trade, nephew, my uncle said. Constance and I talked this over. Would you consider sleds and toboggans? I can use an apprentice. Someday I might leave the business to you, say it's still thriving as it's been lately. In fact, I've got orders backed up from three provinces plus Maine and Vermont in the States. Don't forget that family from Sweden who stopped to ask directions and admired your handiwork, my aunt said. They spent a good hour with us, he said. Well, people from those countries, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and the like, appreciate snow toboggans, even in summer, my aunt said. Lord help us, I've just had a sorry thought, my uncle said. What if that Swedish family wants to pay me in Swedish money? I deal with the problem right away, my aunt said. Discuss it in a letter ahead of time, then just hope the war lets a letter get to Sweden. Sound advice, Constance, he said. I want to set their minds at ease that our provincial banks know how to handle such a transaction. The Victoria pulled up its gangway. Should I sell the house, do you think, I said? I mean, if I take you up on your generous offer. I wouldn't sell just yet, my aunt said. No, ask rent, my uncle said. What with the view of the park, it shouldn't be difficult. No, I'd hang on to the house, Wyatt. Hang on to your mother's radios, too. If you decide yes, drive on out to Middle Economy when you're ready. Or you could leave the house unoccupied. You might want to stay in it now and then. You're a young man. There's far more entertainment in the city, movie houses, pubs, young ladies, and so forth. That's not saying much, my aunt said, considering our entertainment at homes watching gulls bicker on the trawlers. Anyway, Wyatt, you're resourceful, my uncle said. And besides, you'll have Joe's car, right? You can drive into Halifax any time you like. I slept on it, and the next morning I accepted the apprenticeship. The fact was, I didn't want to spend another minute alone in the house deploring my circumstances. I decided to leave 58 Roby Street empty. My aunt and uncle went home. Several days later, I stopped by my high school and filled out an official form that declared I wasn't intending to graduate. Good luck to you then, Wyatt, Mrs. Cornish, the assistant principal said. Have you said goodbye to your friends yet? I've told who I wanted to tell, I said. I hear it's nice along the Bay of Fundy, she said. Fifty-three years in Nova Scotia, I've never been. I drove my father's black DeSoto four-door, badly in need of repairs, but they could wait, to middle economy, smoking Chesterfield cigarettes one after the next. Nowadays, it's paralleled by Highway 102, but in 1941, you could only take Route 2 north to Truro, at the center of the province. Between the roadside villages of Beaverbank, Home Settlement, Shubankati, Alton, Stuak, Hilton and Millbrook were long stretches of woods and fields. In Truro, I stopped for a sandwich at Canaan's restaurant and took considerable time in a shop choosing a box of chocolates for my aunt. From Truro, I traveled west on Route 2, the blue-gray expanse of the Minas Basin on my left, rain clouds building on the horizon. Through the villages of central Onslow, Glenholm, Great Village, Porta Peak, Bass River, upper economy, then into middle economy. Because of the condition of the DeSoto, I had to drive slowly. The entire trip took about four and a half hours. My aunt and uncle's house was half a mile inland from the Minas Basin along Cove Road. I moved into the spare bedroom. That first year, I went back to visit Halifax five or six weekends, 
but never once slept at 58 Roby, didn't even drive past. Instead, I stayed at the Baptist Spa on Morris and Barrington, 125 a night, shared washroom down the hall, breakfast served in a small dining room on street level. But the evening before I'd left Halifax, my next-door neighbor on the side opposite Reese McIsaac's house, elderly Mr. Lazard, said he'd be willing to look after things, mow the lawn, clip the shrubbery, forward any mail. There was little mail. Leave a few lights on at night, that sort of thing. Part of the booming nightlife of Halifax of late's been break-ins, he said. I'm not too worried, I said. Well, I liked Catherine and Joe, he said. Besides, it's hardly putting me out now, is it? I don't take my morning constitutional to the harbor and back anymore, but I'm still capable of walking next door. I appreciate it. One thing, and I need your permission, he said. I'd like to have all your mother's radios on at the same time, just during classical hour out of Buffalo, as it might be the closest I'll ever get to hearing a full orchestra in person. Reese McIsaac's gone to New York City, anyone's guess for how long, so the radios won't disturb her. I haven't figured out yet how to plug them all in and not blow every fuse in the house, but somebody at Metcalf's Electric will advise. It's all fine with me, I said. I'll do this only once, Mr. Lazard said. It'd be a Sunday night, since that's when the classical hour comes on. I'll make my decision which Sunday by checking the programming schedule in the newspaper. I won't stand for any godforsaken Vivaldi. You don't have to worry about that. Beethoven, Johann Sebastian Bach, and a bunch of others, they're allowed. Would you care to be told on which Sunday I had all the radios on at once? Not necessary, I said. All right, then, Wyatt, he said. Good luck to you. I'll look after your house. Vivaldi won't break in. Not on my watch. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. 